I know that in many homes and in places of work, life has had to be simplified because of the restrictions placed on us by this COVID-19 pandemic. In order to minimize the spread of this virus, we've all had to make adjustments in life, and most of those adjustments have been to simplify our lives. We have continued with what we believe are essentials that we need to do, and we have disregarded or discontinued the non-essential practices of our lives. In fact, many of us have now come to the realization that that which we thought was essential to our happiness in life, or we just had to do, we found out that we could really live without having to do it. For example, I have come to realize I don't need to wear socks. I haven't worn socks in over a month, and it's wonderful. In fact, as I preach now, I am not wearing socks. I am wearing home slippers because I don't need to. The camera angle doesn't show my feet. I hope that doesn't change your perception of me as I preach. In fact, I've come to learn that throughout the week, I can live with no socks, one slipper, one jean, and three shirts that rotate. Simple living has its perks. Here in our church, in our planning, we as a church, as we examine how we operate, have looked at the essential functions that we do and the non-essential functions. Interestingly enough, we found that out of the 45 ministries and programs that we do throughout the year, 10 are really essential. The other 35 are non-essential. This has certainly simplified our operations and ministry focus, especially in these unique times. In our own spiritual lives, we can declutter a lot of things to focus on the essentials of biblical spirituality. What are the essentials of biblical spirituality? That's what we want to take a look at today. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2. We're going to take a look at verses 40 to 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 40 to 47, as we catch a glimpse of the first century early church near its founding. Why do we want to take a look at the early church? Because the early church was a persecuted church. They didn't have many resources. They were a church that had to focus on the essentials, and they didn't have time or the resources to worry about the non-essentials. They are a church defined by their spirituality, but they are a church of simplicity. They are a church of great passion for Jesus Christ, but they are a church that really focused on what was important. What was it that they, under the leadership of the apostles, considered to be the essentials of biblical spirituality and practice? What was it that they considered important and worth doing? Let's take a look as we try to apply it in our current situation. Look at me at verses 40 to 41 of Acts chapter 2. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. At this point in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, Two, Peter is preaching and challenging the people who are assembled to repent and turn to Jesus Christ. 
With the moving of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, and they were baptized as a public identification of their faith in Jesus. They immediately joined the church. You know, some people have the notion that the early church was very small. That's why they were simple. It was assumed that the early church is a church that we cannot emulate today with the largeness of our churches today and the complexities that we have to consider. But I want you to remember that in one day, the church in Jerusalem became an instant megachurch with over 3,000 people in one city. They didn't have a large church building or a facility to house everyone. They didn't have multiple meeting places where they could segregate the youth and cry rooms for the babies. They didn't have any established programs or welcome centers or ways by which to incorporate these new men and women into the church to get them plugged in or established into the church. They were immediately a community of more than 3,000 people. How were they able to function as a church community? They maintained simplicity and they focused on what was essential and didn't do what was not. I point this out because our church is about two-thirds the size of this early church in Jerusalem. And so we can definitely learn from them. In their church community, what did they consider essential that needed to be done? Let's take a look. Verse 42, the beginning. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The first thing we see the early church doing is that they were involved in and they considered essential in the simplicity of their church community life was number one, the learning of God's Word. Learning God's Word was essential to them. The Bible tells us they persisted in, they continued in the apostles' teaching or their doctrines. In other words, the early church listened to what the apostles taught and they diligently lived out what they heard. The apostles would have taught them from the Jewish scriptures, also known as the Old Testament, as well as the teachings of Jesus Christ, which we have in the four Gospels. The rest of the New Testament was yet to be written. Notice that the early Christians saw the importance and the priority in the revealed Word of God, the Scriptures. I wonder if you, during this time of home confinement or community quarantine, how many of you have deepened your understanding in the Word of God? What have you learned in these nine weeks of ECQ that you didn't know before about God and His Word? You know, I've loved hearing stories about those in our church community who gather together as families or as individuals every week for a time of worship. That's wonderful. And during this time, they grow deeper in God's Word. I've heard testimonies of how men and women have begun to establish a consistent devotional life, a time where they can set aside every day to spend time in prayer and in God's Word. I hear of young people, perhaps bored of computer games or watching Netflix, but kudos to them. They have begun book studies through their own self-initiative to learn God's Word. I know of a group of high schoolers who are studying the book of Ezra and Nehemiah in their virtual life group. I commend them. 
There are also stories of little children as young as six who are listening to this so-called adult message like the one you're listening to now and are able to understand biblical concepts being taught, never underestimate the mental capacity to absorb biblical teaching even as young as they are because they are actively engaged in the family discussion afterward. In fact, just last week, a mother of a nine-year-old sent me her son's sermon notes. I was impressed. Her son's sermon notes would have put some adults' notes to shame. I thought that last week's message was a bit more theologically deep, harder to understand, but this young boy of nine years old was able to capture the major themes. And the mom says that, It is this son who looks forward to learning more about God's Word every week. Learning God's Word should be a non-negotiable for followers of Jesus Christ of any age. It isn't something that you do only when you have time. But even more now that you have time, you and I should be wanting to learn more of God's Word. As with wanting to learn something you and I must be willing to put the effort to do so. Learning God's Word, learning more about who God is, isn't something that will come naturally. You and I have to put in the effort. For example, if you want to learn how to cook, you can't just watch the Food Channel like I do for hours all the time and think that immediately you're going to be a master chef. You have to put in the effort to perhaps buy some great cooking equipment, the equipment that you need, to be a fine chef. You may have to go to the grocery store, multiple grocery stores, to find the food ingredients that you need. You have to put in the effort to scour the internet, perhaps, if something like flour and baking soda is missing, so that you can practice baking. It may entail, perhaps, you washing more dishes or cleaning more. It may entail that you get oil burns from the frying pan. It may come with repeated tries and even multiple failures as you perfect your recipe. But all of that effort will allow you to master cooking. In the same way, if learning God's Word is an essential part of a simplified biblical spirituality that we should all cultivate, then we need to put in the effort to learn God's Word. Parents may have to become Bible teachers to put the biblical lessons into a context and into an application that their child would understand. They may have to explain biblical stories in an age-appropriate way, and that will require that you carve out time and that you take time. Perhaps some of you may have to carve out time and put in the effort to find out the answers to the biblical questions that you have. You may have to struggle with the biblical text to read it over and over to be able to understand what it's trying to say. You may have to enroll in a Bible class. Dallas Seminary is offering tons of free Bible classes online. It may take weeks. It may take months. It may take years. But that effort will gain you a greater knowledge into what is an essential of our spiritual lives, the learning of God's Word. Notice in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that there is only one program for this. It wasn't split into a children's, youth, and adult segment or grouping. There was only one program for the community, and it was the apostles' teaching. It was a 
one approach method. Why? Because the primary responsibility for learning was on the learner and is on the learner, not the teacher. Of course, teachers bear a responsibility to teach well and to teach rightly. But for those who see that learning God's Word is an essential part of their spiritual life, the responsibility is on them. The effort is on them to learn. And that's why the Bible is replete with challenges for us to dig into God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teaching about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. The admonition from the author of Hebrews, move beyond the elementary teachings, the easy teachings, and move forward in your knowledge of God's Word into spiritual maturity. It's made more difficult because this is a generation, young and old, that wants the easy answers, that doesn't want to put in the time. They just want to watch a short YouTube video, and they want to learn it all from the YouTube video of 10 minutes. They don't want to struggle with the text and to think through their faith and commit to mind and memory the Word of God. That's why so few memorize God's Word today, because it requires effort. And they think, you know what, I don't need to do that. I can just Google it the next time I need it to reference it. So they never internalize and learn God's Word. My friends, do you see the learning of God's Word as essential to your biblical spirituality? And if so, are you doing it? What steps are you taking to ensure that you are learning God's Word? It is an essential part of your life. The other things are just non-essential fluff. Look at verse 42 towards the end. And fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayer. The second essential thing that the early church did was to fellowship, or number two, to disciple in community. Essential number two, discipleship in community. What was it that the early church found that was so important that they had to do? The Bible said that they were in fellowship. And it doesn't simply mean hanging out together. It really meant doing discipleship in community. Why do I say that? You see, the Greek word for fellowship here is te koinonia. It refers to the sharing things with others, the sharing of time and things with others. Now, even though they shared material goods, the emphasis, the primary reference of what they shared together was ideas, attitudes, purposes, mission, and activities. In other words, they live life together, spurring one another on towards Christ-likeness. Because followers of Jesus Christ have one purpose, to be more like Him and to glorify Him. And so fellowship here in verse 42 is really what we call discipleship today. Each person in community spurring each other to be more Christ-like. In fact, this idea of community engagement is found even in the Old Testament. Proverbs chapter 42 verse 17 tells us, As iron sharpens iron... So a man sharpens the countenance of his friends. We are to spur one another towards godliness and Christ-likeness. Notice there are here two specific activities mentioned to further elaborate on this discipleship fellowship. The breaking of bread and in prayer. 
their version of fellowship was not simply hanging around, joking around, doing nothing else. But it was discipleship and community. And it had two aspects. A practical side and a spiritual component. They broke bread, meaning they ate a meal together. It most likely included the Lord's Supper, the remembrance of Christ's death and resurrection as part of their meal. Their sharing of their lives together was not simply to come together to hang out, but to really encourage one another to live for Christ. And so, as they came together and the activities that they did, it was for the purpose, even in their eating together, of reminding each other of their relationship with Jesus and how they are to live. And so in our context today, you can come together and play e-games. You can come together and, and, and watch an NBA or PBA game together. You can come together as a family to play Monopoly or Scrabble together. But as you do life together, as you fellowship together, there should be a component or a purpose of encouraging one another to grow in Christ. It doesn't mean Bible study, but perhaps in how one plays a game in fairness and in humility, or perhaps how one can interact together in encouragement to show forth Christ-likeness, to represent Christ in the way you interact with one another. The other aspect of fellowship or living together or discipleship in community was, of course, the spiritual component which we referenced as they came together practically in eating together, they also spent time in prayer. They gathered together to offer corporate praise and thanksgiving to God in prayer. And that's what true community is. Discipleship in community is living life together to encourage one another to have a heavenly mindset, to encourage one another to look to Christ, to remind each other specifically in prayer in this context, that we are unable, but God is able in supplication or in petition, or we are so blessed, and so we offer prayers of thanksgiving for God's grace and mercy in our lives. That's what they did. They came together in prayer. Nothing like prayer to turn our hearts and our minds spiritual. You ask, can this be done today? We can't meet together. There is nothing today that prevents us from doing discipleship in community. Yes, we can't be in physical contact together, but technology allows us to do all that the Bible is describing. Even if your internet is slow, you can call each other up on the phone. You can encourage one another. You can reach out and connect you can journey with someone, and you can encourage them spiritually. You can bring their minds heavenward in your conversation, seasoned with grace. It's funny, in many ways, although we think that this quarantine time prevents us from engaging each other in life, in many ways, this virtual community has given us a glimpse further into the lives of each other. It's funny. I, as your pastor for 15 years, have rarely been into any of your homes because of the way the 21st century community is built. I've been to a lot of coffee shops with you, but not into your homes. And for years, I've wondered what your homes look like. 
in these past many weeks. I have been invited into your homes. I've seen hundreds of homes because with Zoom and with teleconferencing, I can see into your houses. And my comment is everyone's room looks so clean. I wonder how many of you clean up your room so that you can have a Zoom call. I bet you that most of the junk in that room are moved to the right and to the left just outside of the camera's view. But that being said, it's, it's nice, it's wonderful to get a glimpse of you in your home. And so virtual communities are still communities. And yes, they will require adjustments on our part. But it does not negate the fact that we can still do discipleship in community. Praise God for technology which allows us to be in community. Are we doing discipleship in it? Are we spurring one another on towards Christ's likeness? Are we encouraging each other to look to Christ, the author and the finisher and the perfecter of our faith? Discipleship can even happen in your home as each of you do activities, as you eat with your children or with your parents. How many of you are turning the conversation spiritual? How many of you are praying together? How many of you are encouraging each other spiritually as you go through your daily lives and your chores and your studies? Discipleship in the home is just as important as discipleship amongst friends. Remember, it is essential. It was essential for the earlier church. It is essential now that we point each other to Christ, to prod each other to be more Christ-like as iron sharpens iron. And this essential of the biblical spirituality we've been talking about doesn't go away with quarantine. In fact, perhaps it's even more highlighted because now we are forced to be in community to get out of our loneliness. You see, you aren't simply a Christian or you don't live out Christ's likeness only in a church building and that's the problem for many. It's very easy to live out discipleship and Christ-likeness here in the church in our enclosed community. But it's much more difficult to live out discipleship and Christ-likeness in your own spheres of influence, in your own homes, because not everyone may be a follower of Christ. But that's okay. Can you still maintain a wonderful Christ-like community in your homes that will attract those who are living with you to come to know Jesus. Something for you to think about. Now let's take a look at verses 43 to 45. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as everyone had need. The third essential for biblical spirituality is number three, caring for others. Caring for others. Verse 43 tells us that the apostles were able to authenticate the true message of Jesus Christ with miracles. But notice verse 44 to 45. They sold all their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. They sold all their properties. Why? The Bible doesn't tell us specifically. Perhaps right after Christ had resurrected and ascended, they thought that he would return soon and establish his kingdom. Of course, we hold to the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Christ can come at any time. And having just left, they expected Jesus to come right back there and then. 
This may explain why this practice was not continued. No other New Testament church practiced communal living to the extent that the Jerusalem church did. And remember, this wasn't some small family church of two to three or four families. This was over 3,000 people. But notice that the New Testament nowhere commands communal living as a practical way of living. And the book of Acts does not refer to it after chapter 5. So the takeaway is not that you should sell everything and give it to the church and everyone live at the church. That's not the point. The stress is on their care for one another, specifically sacrificial care that is an essential part of their expression and our expression of the Christian faith. Please also note that holding everything in common was not socialism or communism because it was voluntary. It was not under compulsion that they needed to give. Also, their goods were not evenly distributed as is taught in socialism, but were given to meet the needs as they arose. I wanted to mention that. But the community saw as essential, as a part of their Christian faith and their Christian community, the need to care for one another, the caring of others. I don't know if you remember the story from many years ago. It was a story of a viral video that went around the internet. It was a viral video of a school bus monitor named Karen Klein who was being heckled relentlessly by a group of 13-year-old youths. I saw that video and I was revolted. The verbal abuse was captured in a 10-minute cell phone video recorded by a, a student of Athena Middle School in the suburb of Rochester. The video shows Klein trying her best to ignore the stream of profanity, insults, and outright threats. One student even taunted, you don't have a family because they all killed themselves because they don't want to be near you. Klein's oldest son had killed himself just 10 years before. A Canadian man from Toronto saw this video and wanted to reach out. He started a fund drive with a modest goal of raising $5,000 to help Klein take a nice vacation. But the fund raised more than a half a million dollars to be given to Klein. In fact, Southwest Airlines announced that they would send her and none of her close friends on an all-expense vacation trip to Disneyland. Another five-star resort in Florida gave her and a companion first-class tickets and accommodations to their resort. Stories of generosity from complete strangers whose heart went out to this Karen Klein who received such verbal abuse. And we all love stories like that, and we would have, I'm sure, helped her. We see the community rallying together, helping those in need, and our hearts are warmed. There will always be evil in this world. There will always be people who are in need. And how we as a church shows care to one another and shows care to others will show to the world the type of people we are. And that's why the early church grew so fast, because they cared for one another. They cared for others. 
In fact, that is the very commandment of Jesus in John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's why it was an essential to the early church, and it is essential for us today in our biblical spirituality. We need to care for one another. We need to care for others. It shows the love of Christ like nothing else does. And you and I know that there are a thousand and one ways to show care for others, whether it's a note of encouragement, whether it's helping someone financially during these tough times. There are many ways for us to care one another. Just because you and I are in quarantine doesn't mean we stop caring for one another. Now, you and I can justify in our minds why we can't. But you know, a time like this really highlights whether we care for others or not. Sometimes we forget that when we are called to care for one another, that the focus is on others. It's on others. But when we care for one another, we worry about our convenience. We are about our time. The very nature of caring and serving others and one another is others. That's why it's hard to do. It is a sacrificial care that's being talked about here. And I know that there are families who are hurting, and this disruption in the economy is affecting many And so you and I have many opportunities as the church scattered to be able to help those in need. If you know that they are in need, care for them. That is an essential part of our Christian faith walk. You represent Christ. You are His ambassadors. You represent this church and His church. And how you care for others reflects Christ to the world. You don't need to wait for the church to set up a program to help you care for one another. You can do it yourself. Again, just like with learning God's Word and discipleship and community, caring for others has to be self-initiated. It will require effort on your part and mine. And if you don't do it, you and I will let that opportunity pass on by. No one will force you. I'm not going to come to your doors and say you must care for others. Only if you are willing and with the creativity of your mind will you be able to care for one another. Because times like this require out-of-the-box thinking. You know, if you want to cultivate a caring spirit in your children's life, as you care for others, it's being modeled to them. You can't demand that someone cares for you, perhaps your children, when you get older. But if you model what Christ's likeness looks like through caring, your children see it. Your parents will see it. They will see this Christ you talk about if they don't know Christ. Times like this makes caring a lot more difficult. It's really a challenge to care for each other and for one another. And because of times like this, a lot of us have reasons and justifications why we don't. 
But times like this challenge us to think creatively, to really give sacrificially so that we can do what is an essential part of the body of Christ, which is to care for others. Care is not about your convenience. Care is about others and their needs. I hope you will be able to see that. Look at verses 46 into the first part of verse 47. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. The fourth essential of biblical spirituality that the early church practiced was joy. The attitude of joy. It's an attitude more than it is something they did. Notice that those who lived this way were glad. That's what verse 46 says. They were glad. That meant they were happy to be with one another in this setup. And with simplicity of heart, meaning that they didn't expect anything more. It wasn't a show. They were content to live like this. They were joyful. They were glad. And with simplicity of heart, they were content. They praised God and they found favor with people. You know, my friends, a believer and an unbeliever in Jesus goes through the exact same situations in life. Being a follower of Jesus Christ doesn't mean you are exempt from the trials and tribulations that this sinful world and fallen world, world brings us. It doesn't mean you are immune from the effects of the coronavirus if you place your trust in Jesus or that you won't get sick or that you won't have a loved one die. The difference is in the attitude of how we tackle these life challenges. And that's why an attitude of joy is essential to make the difference of how one lives their life, whether with hope or with hopelessness. We have the hope and the victory in Jesus Christ. We have the living Savior. It is not manufactured joy that we live It's not positive thinking that gets us to be joyful when we go through difficult times. It is because the foundation of our faith is foundationed upon a living Savior who conquered the grave and has promised life eternal. That's why we can be joyful. Now, if we don't enjoy doing something, if the world doesn't see that there is joy, then they won't be very much motivated to come and ask us why we're joyful. If we are not joyful, then it will be a struggle whether we continue to do the essentials that the Bible calls us to do. If we don't find joy in learning God's Word, if we don't find joy in discipleship and community, if we don't find joy in caring for others, then we will not do it. We won't do it. Let me give you an example. Early on in this quarantine period, our one house helper uh, got ill, took ill. And so we told our children to cover for her. They need to have chores. And so our children took turn washing dishes, doing errands as gophers for my wife and me. While my wife, Cindy, did laundry and cooking and dad just hid in the office. At first they were excited. They were full of joy, happy to be able to help as their yaya Uh, took ill, and uh, they enjoyed what they were doing. But now as we enter week nine, that joy is no longer there. 
We've asked that they continue their chores even though our house helper is okay. But now they fight over whose turn it is. They don't want to do it. And we understand. In fact, we have to set up a system with magnets to remember whose turn it is to run errands or to wash the dishes. What was the difference between how they treated the chores early on and now? The difference is the attitude. They don't enjoy it as they once did before when it was a novelty to them the first time they did it. The early church was able to sustain doing these essentials because they found in learning the Word of God, in doing discipleship in community, in caring for others, a deep, profound joy. There was gladness in their life. They didn't have a building. They didn't have a set program. But this early megachurch of more than 3,000 who were suffering and persecuted, found joy in all that they did. And what was the result? Look at the end of verse 47. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The result is church growth. This is the first of seven progress reports that Luke, the gospel writer, but also the writer of Acts, gives us in the book of Acts. This is the first progress report. The church grew Evangelism became ingrained as a way of life as they lived out their life in pursuing these essentials. It was evangelism. The people saw that they lived very differently and they asked, why do you live with such joy doing these things? And they could tell them about Jesus Christ and how they changed His life. They were able to demonstrate Christ clearly. There was spiritual growth in the church. The church grew, but internally They grew in their faith because they focused on the essentials. To learn God's Word, to do discipleship in community, to care for one another and for others, and they cultivated an attitude of joy. They grew during a very difficult time, and so can you. You know, I've talked to many pastors. They are worried that an extended period away from meeting physically will shrink and affect their church. I've also thought the same thing. But as I read the scriptures, I realize we shouldn't think like that. This is a great opportunity for the church, the body of Christ, you as the church scattered all across the world, all across Metro Manila, all across the Philippines, have an opportunity today to shine as a church like never before. This is a time for the church to grow because it's not about a physical building. It's about clinging to the essentials. Perhaps God is allowing the church to go through this so that we can rid ourselves of the non-essentials to focus back again on the essentials. Because it is the essentials that the world needs to hear. We must be grounded in God's Word because the world is looking for truth. The world is looking for hope. And as you are grounded in the truth, you will be able to share the message of Jesus Christ clearly, boldly, and with confidence because you know His Word well. The world is looking for men and women who are foundationed 
solidly in understanding God's Word. This is a world that needs to have their mindset turned to a greater purpose. Not only a positive thought, but to be able to see heavenward, to be able to see that there is a life beyond this, that this isn't the best life today, that the best of life comes later. And that's where discipleship comes in. Where in discipleship, we can encourage all those around us to set their minds towards Christ and the promises that He gives. And by doing so, we become more Christ-like. This is a world that needs us to care. The world is hurting, and they are hurting in practical ways. And this pandemic is a cry for the church and the people of the church to rise up and to care, not only financially, perhaps even more importantly, to care spiritually and to care emotionally and to lend a listening ear to men and women who are in trouble and are looking for someone to listen to. And this is a world that is looking for joyful people. Not a manufactured joy in feel-good stories, but a joy that comes because our hope is in the one who has conquered death. The joy of one who can go through tribulation but knows that Jesus has overcome the world. A depressed, hopeless world is looking for men and women who know where true joy comes from. God is bringing the church, each one of you, every believer in Him, back to the basics, back to a simplified biblical spirituality, focusing on what is important and ridding ourselves of what is not so that perhaps we can be more effective in evangelizing and discipling this world for Jesus Christ. May you be challenged with His Word. Let's pray. Father, this time we have been reminded that it is important for us to examine our spiritual life. If we have hidden behind programs and even the physical building called the church, you are exposing us to what is essential and what is not. Help your people, help me, to focus on what is essential, what the early church practiced, so that we can be a vehicle of influence and impact in a world which needs followers of Jesus Christ who reflect Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your word. May the work of the Holy Spirit convict, rebuke, teach, and comfort us so that we can be challenged to live a life more Christ-like as you want us to live for you. Bless your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.